All right, as you're taking your seats, take out your Bibles, amen? Get out your swords, sharpen them up. Turn to Revelation chapter 1, Revelation chapter 1, four verses tonight. The first four verses and a study entitled, Who's This All About? You know, the book of Revelation is one of the strangest books in the Bible with regard to asking people who don't know the Lord what the book of Revelation is about. You'll get all kinds of answers. Challenge you to do that. When you're out in the street, you're walking around somewhere and you bump into somebody, ask them if they've ever heard of the book of Revelation and ask them what they think it's about. And you'll get things like spaceships, you'll, you'll get bombs, you'll, you'll get, oh, isn't that the book where there's like horses and chariots? You'll, you'll get all kinds of answers to this very simple question of who's this all about. And yet in the first four verses, we're told very plainly and very clearly who the book of Revelation is about. And we're going to see tonight as we begin this unveiling, remember that the word revelation comes from the Greek word apocalypse or apocalypsis, and it simply means to uncover. It means to reveal, it means to unveil, it means to take the covers off. It means from and cover, actually, in a literal sense. It means to uncover it. Uncover what? Uncover who is the actual question that must be asked and ultimately will be answered. And so tonight, the first four verses, and let's pray and ask God to speak to us through the power of his word. Lord, we have come tonight to hear from you, Lord, that your spirit would just fill this place, that your presence would fall upon us, that, Lord, these words that are contained here in this marvelous book would be revealed from heaven to our hearts and our minds right here in this place right now. God, we ask that you would take those who have come, that maybe they're blinded, God, that you would pull those blinders off. We ask that you would reveal yourself. Lord, your powerful purposes in our lives. Be with us tonight as we study. We ask in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior and our soon coming King. Amen. Verse 1 here in Revelation chapter 1. Notice the answer. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent, and he signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God, to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all the things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written in it, For the time is near, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, amen, Amen. from the seven spirits who are before the throne. So the opening words here in this amazing book. Jesus Christ is the center of all of God's Word. 
But there is no more Christocentric, no more Christ-centered work in all of the Bible than the book of Revelation. Because it really is the uncovering of who Jesus is, who he was in the past, who he is present, and who he will be to us in the future. And so it is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. As we saw last week, that word revelation. It it can be described in all kinds of different ways, but it is certainly to uncover. How many of you have ever seen a veiled statue before it's revealed? I've seen those. You've been to an art museum or something, you're going to unveil a, a statue, and there it is, maybe in the courtyard or a rotunda, and it's completely covered with usually a black drape of some kind or a a colored drape to where you cannot see what's underneath it. And if they're really looking for some kind of suspense, a little bit of drama, in a general sense there's normally some type of a rope tied to it, suspended from a ceiling somewhere. Perhaps if it's large and it's outdoor, there's a crane. And, And there, as they begin to talk about this amazing work that's underneath it, you will see that drape begin to be lifted. And at first you see the bottom, and then you see a little more and a little more. And finally, voila, there it is. Amen? Or if you don't speak French, voila. All of a sudden, now you see what was previously completely covered. And when it comes to art, sometimes it's not so good. But in this case, this is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. There are two basic ways that we see this unveiling. It's the revealing of his person. Because there is a, a person, Jesus. Amen? And that person then intends to do all kinds of things in the world. And when he came the first time, part of what he came for was unveiled. Amen? The big part included becoming our Savior, our sacrifice, our Redeemer. But do you know that he was not fully revealed at that time, was he? Because we've never seen him as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. We have never seen him as the king of kings. We have not actually seen him yet fulfill his role as Lord of lords. We have not seen him as the rightful deed holder to the entire universe. The earth, the fullness of it, is the Lord's. Amen? Everything here belongs to him. It may reside in a temporary sense in your possession. You may have a deed on your home. Jesus holds the deed. You may believe that you own your own car. Why would you want to do that? You may think that the food in your pantry, you know, you went to Food for Less and bought all that, and it's yours. Pastor Kevin and I were talking about bicycles before we came out. I have a mountain bike. I love my mountain bike. But my mountain bike is not my mountain bike. It's Jesus' mountain bike. He, he owns it. I get to borrow it while I'm here. You see, it's an unveiling of the fullness of the plan that Jesus has for the entirety of time. We've only seen a little bit. We've seen him as Savior. We've seen him as the precious Lamb of God to this point in time, have we not? He came as the sacrifice, the sacrificial Lamb, the Lamb who came to take away the sins of the world. We know Jesus in that role. 
What happens when he comes back on that white horse inscribed on his thigh the name that only he knows? King of kings and Lord of lords. You see, he didn't do that the first time he was here. Amen? He's unveiled in the book of Revelation. He's going to describe for us the entirety of the church age and he will do that in a very, very wonderful way as he unveils himself through John as the messenger speaks these words to John as he sees these things literally in his mind. Now sometimes when I'm really hungry and I, I, I've been you know, somewhere, especially if you go backpacking, it is amazing what can happen in your mind when you're coming down that last few miles of the trail and you're heading towards the trailhead and all of a sudden there is a literal cheeseburger in your head. (laughs) Because you've been living on freeze-dried food. Some of you know exactly what I'm saying. You can see it. Furthermore, you can smell it. You can almost taste it. I'm not comparing Jesus to a cheeseburger, mind you. But for sake of illustration, understand, when you see a vision... When you have had that type of an experience where something is so real in your heart and in your mind, not only can you see it, but you literally have an experience with it. That's what happened to John. He had an experience with Jesus that was so real that when the Lord was unveiled to him, it was as if he was watching in technicolor. He saw it. That's why he understood it the way he understood it. That's what the Holy Spirit did in his life. And one day, that period of time that we're in right now, the church age, is going to come to a close. Amen? If you haven't figured it out by now, the earth that we now know one day is going to melt like wax. People don't like it when you say stuff like that. Well, you're a, you're a warmonger. No, I'm not at all. I believe the word of God is true and every man's a liar. And so what it says about the history of mankind will come to pass. And so it says very plainly that one day the heavens are going to open and the king of kings is coming back. And when he comes back, he's coming back as a conquering king. He's not coming back as the Lamb again. He's coming back as the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Great I Am. He's unveiled in this book that way. You see, a lot of people look at the book of Revelation and you just think it's kind of an endless string of stories, kind of little glimpses of things that might someday happen. As sure as we are sitting here tonight, is there a nation Israel right now? It was birthed on May 14th of 1948, just celebrated its birthday just a couple days ago by the Jewish calendar, not by ours, not by the Julian calendar. It was birthed, it was brought into existence. You realize the book of Revelation prophesied those events as well as the book of Joel, as well as very specifically the book of Ezekiel. And so Ezekiel in chapter 37, it says, One day I will bring you back. I will raise up these dry bones. I will put meat. I will put sinew on them. And I will bring them back into their land from which they have been dispersed. That has happened. A whole bunch of the story hasn't happened yet. But as surely as that event occurred, 
so will the remainder of the events in this book occur. It is the unveiling of the entirety of the church age and family of God. The clock, Israel, is ticking. And as we look at that amazing land, which we will be traveling to together about a year from now, the reason we're doing that so far out is you have time that way to save for that trip. We also have to book our hotels in advance. But when we travel there, you're going to get a feel for the urgency of the nation Israel. This book reminds us of that urgency. Because one day, according to the prophet Joel, also recorded in this book, the Lord Jesus will say, enough. Enough. Joel records for what they have done to my people Israel and what they have done with my land. He is going to judge the world. It's unveiled in this book. The third verse here will actually give us the structure. But as we begin to kind of pull this apart in verse 1, notice it says the revelation of Jesus Christ. When we get to the 66th book, uh, the, any prophecy that was begun in another book finds its culmination in this one. Do you understand that? You see, what is partially revealed for us in Daniel and partially revealed for us in Ezekiel and partially revealed through the prophet Isaiah and partially given to us in the book of Zechariah, those things which are underway, those things which are partially revealed, all find their culmination in the book of Revelation. The end. Do you remember what the first words in the Bible are? In the beginning. Do you know why that is? Because before then, there was nothing but the Lord himself. From nothing, ex nihilo, in Latin, from nothing... God breathed the universe into existence and time began. That's why it says, in the beginning. And so as time begins, time will also have an end one day and then eternity. This book describes the end of time as we know it. It's a very important book. And so when we look at it, we, we know about the first coming, amen? Was he not the babe in the manger? That was predicted, by the way. He will be born in Bethlehem. That he would be born of a virgin. All of those things which the Old Testament said of the first coming came true in the life of Jesus. Not one thing that was prophesied in the Old Testament about the coming, the first coming of Jesus, was left undone. We have no reason to believe that what was said about his second coming will not also be completely fulfilled. And we're going to find that in these first four verses we find a secret to that, that they will eventually come quickly. They must take place shortly. Now when we think of the word shortly, we put it into an English context. 
But the context that's here is not an English context, it's a Greek context, and furthermore, it's a biblical context. And so when we think of shortly, we're looking at, well, that was 2,000 years ago. To us, that's a long time. To God in heaven who created time, it's not a long time. It's a very short period of time. Furthermore, the word short here means in relationship to the things being spoken of. And so when you think of the word shortly, you have to put it into its context, both biblically and in the original language, the way it was intended. It means that once these things begin to happen, they will take place very, very rapidly. Look at where we are in the world today and ask yourself a simple question. Israel's in the land. Ezekiel 38, 39 says that there will be a consortium of nations that will be comprised of Russia and almost all of the Arab world, and they will come against Israel, led by Persia, which is modern-day Iran. And ask yourself a question. Could that not happen very shortly? You see, it's the unveiling of the very last things. And once they start, it's going to boggle your mind how quickly they're going to go. It's the climax of time. We find our sovereign Savior, the incomparable. Who, who do you compare Jesus to? Amen? He's one of one. Isn't he? You know, we think of, we think of copies. I don't know how many of you get spam in your inbox, but... I, I, I almost bought myself a real nice Breitling watch, except it had on the other side, made in China. But when you look at it, it looked like a real Breitling orbiter. I've, I like those watches. They're, they are nice. I don't like the $10,000 price tag on them. I like the forty nine ninety five. dollars you, you see, there's the real thing, and then there's the imitation, almost anything in the world. There is no imitation of Jesus Christ. He's the one and the only. He's the one who was, he is the one who is, and he is the one who is to come. He is both the alpha, the beginning, the first letter of the Greek alphabet. He is the omega, the last letter of the Greek alphabet. And everything in between is in the span of his hands. He's all there is, ultimately. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. And this book is about his glory. I want to also remind you, because there's a falsehood in the way we sometimes speak of the book of Revelation. Many people call it the book of Revelations. You need to avoid doing that because it fosters a long-held belief that this is nothing but a bunch of stories that you can kind of look at and take individually. That's not it at all. It's actually a nine-layered cake. It is parallel lines of God's dealing with mankind throughout the history of the church age, and it comes to an end. It is not the revelations, it is the singular revelation of Jesus, who is the Christ. All that he began with his first coming, and what he will do with his second coming, all the way up unto the end of days, which is a new heaven and a new earth. Hallelujah because we've botched this one up. Amen? There's a plan. 
The redemptive work is not just in the lives of people, it's in the whole world. He's going to bring this world back to what it was supposed to be before Adam and Eve so graciously messed it up for us. We would have done the same thing, by the way. Don't be too hard on Adam and Eve, because if you were there, you would have done no better. You might have not even made it to the tree. When we look at the Bible, the Gospels give us a portrait of Jesus in four viewpoints. The epistles kind of give us a logical analogy of all of the things that that pertain to our faith. But it is the book of Revelation that presents the King of Kings as the Lord of glory. Amen? I can't wait to see the Lord of glory. I don't know about you guys. I've seen enough of this earth. There's some places on this earth that are beautiful, by the way. You've ever watched the sunrise over the Hawaiian Islands? A sunset out on the open ocean? There's some pretty amazing things about the earth. They pale in comparison to the glory of God. When he comes again, he's coming in his glory. The brightness of his coming is going to be revealed. And so he is the central focus of all prophecy, and it's going to one day come to a close. You ever bumped into people? Now, I don't know if you've had this experience, but I've had this experience where I'm talking to people about the Lord, and they're generally people who are in some way, shape, or form fairly entrenched in the things of this life, the things of this world. They begin to talk about their life, and you know, maybe they're going to some party, or they've got some sport. i got tickets to the Super Bowl. I actually had this happen one time on Super Bowl week. I had a guy, I have tickets to the Super Bowl. You know, this Jesus thing, I'll deal with it when I get back. I'm thinking to myself, you better deal with him now because you may not make it back. Tomorrow is promised to no man, amen? The number of our days are held by him, not by us. I don't get to make that choice. Probably all of us know someone who's what we would say is gone home to be with the Lord too soon. If we can all think of one person, amen? You, you see, this book is the way we see all that stuff equaled out. All of the inequity throughout time, all of the persecution, all the problems, all the difficulties that you in your life on this earth and everyone who has ever experienced anything on this earth in their life, it all gets fixed eventually. This book tells the story of that. Hallelujah. This book also tells us the end of Satan. Amen? I'm kind of looking forward to that day. I don't know if we get to be a part of wrapping him up in chains and tossing him into the pit. I think Jesus does it by himself according to what Scripture says. But I'd like to throw a lock or two on it just for good measure myself. I, I trust the Lord with it, but it just, it's kind of a symbolic thing. Yeah, take this. This book tells us his end. You see, because right now it looks like he's kind of winning, doesn't it? Look at the world that we're in. Look at the mess this world is in. Look at what the enemy is doing to mankind right now. How can people traffic in human beings? How in the world can that happen? 
My Bible says one day all that ends. If I'm looking to the UN to solve that problem, it ain't happening. If I'm looking to the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta, to cure AIDS, not happening. My king's going to fix all that stuff. That's what it says. He's unveiled in all of his glory. Some people look at the book of Revelation and they say, well, it's just not, you know, it's not clear. It is clear. It's not as clear as some of us would like it, amen? The book of Revelation showcases the Lord. But it's only showcased to those of us who know him. The reason that people don't understand the book of Revelation is because they don't know Jesus. So when they look at those things which are contained in it, they go, ah, I don't know about that. The outworking of those things that we call Scripture are known to us. Spiritual things are spiritually appraised. The carnal mind cannot know them. It's exactly what Paul wrote to us there in the first letter to the church at Corinth. They're hidden as far as the world's concerned. They look at us, we start talking about Jesus coming again, and they're, they're like, you have been smoking something. I've actually, well, you know, at least I admit to the fact that I'm, I, you know, we know things the world doesn't know. Why? Because this book unveils them. Tells us things that the whole world should know. This wouldn't do us much good if it wasn't clear. And so we do get a full-length portrait of the Lord in it. A natural man there in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, has not received the things of the Spirit of God, their foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Period. So when your unsaved friends come to you and say, well, I think you're nuts, that's not an insult to you. The Bible says we're out of our minds for the sake of Christ. Amen? So tell them, you're right, I am crazy for Jesus. Spiritual things are spiritually appraised. Christians know because we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us. And notice what it says here. It says these things would shortly take place. The word that's used there is actually the Greek word takai. And and it is the same word from which we get our word taxi and also tachometer. And both of those things have to do with relative rates of speed. Amen? If you're in traffic in New York, a taxi is not going to go very fast. But relative to the people walking on the sidewalk, it's fast. Amen? If you happen to have, like, back in the day, I don't know how many of you have ever had the privilege of driving a Yugo, but a Yugo relative to, say, a Zastava 101 from Yugoslavia, they're actually quite fast. You see, it's talking about relative speed. It's not talking about flat-out speed. It's like me racing an Olympic sprinter. For the first nanosecond... I got him whooped because I'm standing on his foot. And then after that, I get knocked over, and he's 100 yards ahead of me. See, relatively speaking, shortly it's going to take place. And so in the sense of all of these things beginning, once they begin to happen without warning, Revelation chapter 22 says it this way, Behold, I am coming quickly. Amen? I'm coming quickly. 
We look at it in that way. We begin to take each day as if the Lord could be back today. I can't wait. I think sometimes I think about the Lord coming back and I'm like, I don't know if you ever do this or not, but I'll, I'll like kind of look out the window. Is that him? We need to think like that as the body of Christ. We need to be looking for our King comes. It's coming shortly. Yeah, we have God, Israel's back in the land. They're speaking one language again. Jesus said that the generation that sees these things come to pass will not perish from the earth. Now what he meant by a generation, we're not exactly sure, but I know this. For the first time since he left the first time, Israel is now back in the land. They are a nation, they are a people, and they are speaking one language. God puts all these things into their proper time work, their proper framework And in fact, if you look at what it actually says here, it gives us a picture of a logical necessity. When we talk about a logical necessity, it works like this. When you get in your car and you're flying down the freeway and you see the traffic stopped in front of you, it is a logical necessity that you also apply your brakes, right? You know, I can prove to you that's true. The crash that will happen if you don't. Amen? It is a logical necessity that A and B, follow one another. We would call that a reaction to that which already is. The book of Revelation provides us with a logical necessity that must shortly take place. That word must is very key. These things are part of God's eternal plan. God's purposes are certain. They're arbitrary. They're they're not happenstance. So many people, when they talk about the sovereignty of God or the will of God, they, they go on, the, on these tangents of, you know, well, you know, I think God works like this and maybe he works like that. You can't use those words and use the sovereign plans of God in the same, in the same sentence. God is absolutely sovereign and what he wills to do, he will do. This book provides us with the backdrop of what he will do what he must do. Because your Bible says that ultimately Jesus Christ is the righteous judge of all the earth, is he not? Isn't that what it says? He's the righteous judge of all the earth. And in fact, your Bible actually tells us that one day all of us are going to stand before the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, to receive reward or lack thereof for those things which we've done in this body, in this earth. He's the righteous judge. This book tells us of the other judgment that awaits those who don't know him. You see, he judges everybody. He judges us in his own righteousness. He judges the lost against his own righteousness. It's going to be a rough day. The book of Revelation is an interesting book in many, many ways because it does use so many signs. That's why it says, and he sent this and signified it. You use signs all the time. I use signs all the time. Prayerfully, you pay attention to things like road signs. If you've ever done algebra, you use signs, right? There are things that, you you know, a little greater than or less than or X and Y are not actually X and Y. You can't multiply X and Y, amen? They stand for something. Remember when your algebra teacher said, solve for X? X is actually a number, isn't it? It's a sign. 
It's the same thing here in Revelation. Matter of fact, we're going to see some very quickly. We're going to see some candlesticks and some stars, and we're going to be told what the candlesticks are and what the stars are. So we know the candlesticks are not actual candlesticks, and we know the stars are not actual stars. They actually represent something else, but they were very real at the time, and they would have been understood. There are no less than 400 allusions to the Old Testament found in the book of Revelation. That's pretty stunning when you think that the Old Testament and the New Testament had a gap of 400 years between the last book of the Old Testament and the first book of the New Testament, and now in 96 AD, uh, at least 30 to 40 years after the completion of the Gospels, you have the book of Revelation. So you're literally talking about a span of time of 500 years. So 500 years earlier, all these things that the prophet Isaiah was, was writing about, that there would be a highway unto our God, all of the things that Daniel prophesied about, that this Messiah would come and he would be cut off for the sake of the prince, find their culmination in the book of Revelation. How would they have known that? How would they have even understood those things? By the same God that authored the old, authoring the new, through the power of the Holy Spirit, spoken to men, and those men wrote those things down. It's literally God-breathed. It's not man's work. It's God's work. We see the future plan and the importance of the prophetic message that's contained within Scripture. We see supernatural messengers like the angel that's mentioned here. Notice in verse 2, who bore witness of the Word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Three component parts there. Firstly, the Word of God. The word of God is truth, amen? Jesus said of himself, I am the word, amen? He's the word. And the word, John recorded, became flesh and dwelt among us, amen? So who's being revealed? The one who is the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. And the word was God, And the Word was with God, and the Word was in the beginning, God. So this is the revealing of God, who is Jesus. Bore witness to that Word. You know, sometimes people debate about whether the Word of God is truth, and they usually throw throw things out there, like insofar as it's correctly translated. And there's some merit to saying things like that. But the fact of the matter is, the Word speaks of itself as being true. And so our job is to believe it, it's to receive it, it's to act on it, it's to take it in and do something with it. And so he says one of the things here is he bore witness to the word of God. Jeremiah said the same thing, Job said the same thing, Jesus in Matthew's gospel said the same thing, Peter said the same thing. Notice the second thing, the testimony of Jesus Christ. Isn't it interesting how many views of who Jesus is exist in our world today? Another great question to talk to people about who they think Jesus is. Just ask them a simple question. It's the same question, by the way, that was asked to Peter. Amen? Who do you say that I, the Son of Man, am, Peter? Who am I? He responded, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. The world says, well, he's uh, Lucifer's brother. That's what the Mormons claim. 
He's one of God's many sons, and he just happened to have a better plan for redemption than Lucifer. Lucifer was kind of a loser in the Godhead kind of thing. If you talk to a Muslim, he is a prophet. Not quite as good as the other guy, but nonetheless a prophet. Buddhists believe much the same thing. If you talk to a Christian scientist, well, he's a Christ ideal. He is an ideal representation. If, if God could be here on this earth, he'd kind of look like that guy. He'd kind of act like him. Your Bible says Jesus Christ is God's only Son, and he is God incarnate in human flesh. One of one. No equal, no others. The testimony of Jesus Christ. And thirdly, to the things he saw. That phrase is going to be used 54 times in the book of Revelation. That's why I began this. John saw these things. They, they weren't just little, you know, he got a little blip here and a blip there. I, I, you know, I don't know whether it was like PowerPoint went on the back of the cave. I'm not sure. But I know this. John saw it so much that 54 times he repeat, repeats the phrase, these things I saw. Heart, mind, all, the, all of them together. Maybe the windows of heaven were open to him. We're not sure And he says, in a personal sense, 37 times, I saw him. Not just that he saw things, I saw them. Many of the things we find here, we find nowhere else in Scripture. And so it's a very important book from that standpoint, because we need the information contained here to look at much of the rest of the, especially the prophetic parts of the Old Testament. Notice what it says in verse 3. Blessed is he who reads. There are three things here. And you can see them for yourself. Blessed is he who reads. That word blessed, it belongs in a very special category of words. Because being blessed can only come from God. We use it rather loosely in our modern culture like it's just simply a good thing. But in Scripture, it only applies to a character of God. Only God actually is blessed, and only God can actually bless us. So it says, blessed. In other words, given that special place by God in our hearts, in our minds, intrinsic with His character, are those who read it. Now, if you use this with junior high students, and you tell them they have to read something, they usually go, nah. You know, can, you, can it be... We used to have this thing when our, when our boys were in junior high. Uh, they were always given reading assignments, and, and we had one that kind of liked to read and one that didn't kind of like to read. And so in that not reading, we would buy the audio books, like, you know, get the whole, you know, audio series on the Chronicles of Narnia or something. You're listening to it, and after a while, you're just, you're going crazy. Why? Because there's something very special that happens when you read something. And it doesn't just happen by hearing it. Hearing it is part of it, but reading it is another. You are actively engaged with your senses to actually look at those words, figure out what they mean, 
your neural synapses fire, they come up with the meaning in the back of your head, they go to your brain, they assemble it in thought, and all of a sudden what you read is very different than someone else just simply saying it to you. It's a deeper level of engagement. Blessed is he who reads these words. And those who hear the words of this prophecy. Notice that it uses the singular word for prophecy. That's actually the correct rendering from the original language. It is a singular prophecy from verse 1 to the end of chapter 22 is one prophecy. It's multifaceted, but it's a single picture of Jesus. And what he will do from the beginning of the end to the end of the end. When I say that, people usually look at me kind of funny. The end began when Jesus came the first time. The last days began on the first day is another way to look at it. Because from that time to this, we've been getting closer to the last day. So the last days began at the first day. Is that saying that we use the first day of your life is the beginning of the last day of your life? It's also true in this sense. That as time began, as the prophetic word of God unfolds before us, that which began 2,000 years ago is far nearer now 2,000 years later than it was when it first began. The last days began then. They're going to actually come to a close one day. This book tells us how that happens. We read it. We hear it. You see, what we're doing right now is hearing that word. What I'm simply doing is sharing uh, an understanding of these things so that as you read it, you've also heard it. But notice the third part, those who keep it. Amen? Keeping things is very different than reading them and hearing them, isn't it? I can prove that to you. You all more than likely have cars. Probably some of you have actually read the owner's manual, right? Where it says in there, after 3,000 miles, change the oil. And then the service technician, when you're delivered the vehicle, says you know that after 3,000 miles, you have to change the oil or it voids your warranty. And then you, "Mm, I could go more than 3,000 miles. I mean, come on, in my day, you changed the oil when it was gone. (laughs) You know what I'm saying. You'd pull out those cars from the 60s, pull out the dipstick, and you had to pull on them real hard because they were actually stuck in that crusty oil in the oil pan. You're like... Yep, there's no oil. (laughs) But you see, it's different reading it in the manual, hearing it from the service writer, and then actually going and changing your oil or buying a new engine because you didn't do it. Amen? You get the picture? You understand what I'm saying? Reading it's one thing, hearing it's another. Doing it is a whole different matter. Because when you do something, that means that you believe what you read. You not only heard with your ears, but you heard with your heart. And now you're going to act on it. That is a three-step process. And that three-step process actually ends and culminates with you not believing it so much that you actually go and do it. You see, I literally believe that one day Jesus is coming again. So I talk to people like Jesus is coming again. I don't talk to them. It's just not something that I read. It's not something that somebody told me. It's something that I believe, so I now act on it when I talk to people. Jesus is coming soon. There's a sense of urgency, amen? 
Go back to my analogy of the car. If you know your warranty's about to run out, and you've got all kinds of leaks underneath your motor of your car, you're going to take it in and get it serviced before the warranty runs out. Amen? The warranty on the earth is about to run out. Its time is nearly up. And one day, our Jesus is coming. The night is far spent, Romans 13 says, verse 12. The day is at hand, and therefore let us cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Amen? You see, there's a sense of urgency to it when you read it, when you hear it, and then when you act on it. It means to us, we would say, these things are really a foregone conclusion. That means they're going to happen. It is simply a matter of when, not if. A lot of people don't read the book of Revelation like it's a foregone conclusion. They read it like it's some kind of sci-fi novel. They do. They look at it and go, well, that's kind of crazy. That's weird. I was showing a guy in the book of Revelation because, you know, there are a lot of things in there. It's like, you know, blood up to the horse's bridle in the valley of Megiddo. That's a lot of blood. You ever been, you're going to go to that valley. You travel with us to Israel. And you look and you go, how could that be? If you read what it says, it says all of the nations of the earth are gathered together in that valley. That's hard for us to understand. Because right now, if you took the Christians out, and let's just say by some strange chance, everyone who's ever professed to be a Christian actually is one, which is debatable to be sure. But say 2.67 billion of us actually got taken up in the rapture there are still the better part of 5 billion people who are still going to be here on the earth. And they're going to be judged. That's a lot of blood. People don't like to hear it. But when you hear it, it gives you a sense of urgency for how you ought to live your life today. Because those might be your friends. They might be your family that are left behind. They could be your kids. They might be your parents. He who reads, he who hears, he who does. See, it's a big difference, he who does. Acts on. Verse 4, as we wrap this up for tonight, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is And who was and who is to come? From the seven spirits who are before the throne, you see, John now presents to us this picture of what he's going to actually put down in writing of these seven churches, the seven spirits from those seven churches, the, the seven messengers, if you will. He's going to name these churches when we get to verse 11. He's going to tell us who they are. We're going to study them one at a time as their picture of church history, the church age, practically, perennially, prophetically. They're going to speak to each one of those periods of time throughout the history of the church. And he says, look, these things are going to happen. As he writes, as he travels, as Paul was in Ephesus, he stayed there. He's going to, John will write to the church at Ephesus, the center, same church that we're studying on Sundays. John's going to say, look, 
you guys did this pretty well, but I have this against you. You've left your first love. Revelation unveils these times. Unveils the Spirit of God working in the church and it uses this formula that's so often used in the Gospels and within the, specifically the epistles of the New Testament. You see, because you can't have, you cannot have peace with God without the grace of God. You can't. People who say, I have peace with God must first experience the grace of God, His unmerited favor. If you're not in that crowd, then you don't have peace with God. You actually have war with God. Because you're either in or you're out. You're either a saint or you're an ain't. You're a sheep, you're a goat. You're either on the narrow road or the broad road. You can't be on any of those things at the same time. You have to be on one or the other. And so when this book begins to speak to us, it says, grace to those. And the the residual effect of that grace is God's peace. All of a sudden, the, the war is ended. You see, because we're actually at war with God if we don't have Christ as our Savior. That's the deal. Without Him as our Savior, then we're actually at war. Scripture is very clear. You're either for Him or you're against Him. You, you can't sit on the fence. A lot of people say that you can, or, or think at least that they can sit on the fence. A lot of people say that. Say, well, when I get old and I can't sin very well, then I'll give my life to Jesus. <laughs> You've probably met people like that. I had a stepfather that actually told me he wanted to go to hell because all of his friends would be there. The tragedy is he's there right now. He died without Christ. He died without Christ. That's not something you want to do. Because there are two roads. There are two destinations as well. And you must have the grace of God to have the peace with God. You must have that unmerited favor. And family, the good news is tonight, we don't deserve it. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. There isn't, there's no, you know, you can't go to like, isn't it crazy what you can get in an airport vending machine now? <laughs> I went in, there's like, there's iPads and iPhones. You got, how do you stick in you know, $745 worth of ones. <laughs> you know, you swipe your ATM card, it laughs at you. But there's no machine in there where you can go buy grace. There, there's nothing you can do to earn it. It's a free gift of God. It's given to us, and He even gives us the faith to believe. Isn't that amazing? That's because God is perfectly just. And God is wonderfully, mercifully kind to us. And He is long-suffering and He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Amen? That's our God. He is willing to give grace to all who ask. He's willing to pour out His unmerited favor upon any of us and all of us. To as many as received Him. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. The Word of God comes to us this way tonight. 
This is the unveiling of Jesus, and Jesus is, in fact, all that we need. It doesn't mean that we don't live in homes. It doesn't mean we don't drive cars. It doesn't mean you don't need food and water. It means that in an eternal sense, so that we might have peace with God, we receive the grace of God. Not religion. Can I share something with you? I hate religion. I hate it. I loathe it. Because I believe that an awful lot of people don't love Jesus because of what they saw in religion. You see, religion by its definition is man's attempt to reach God. You don't need to worry about that. He reached down to us. And he did it through Jesus. Jesus Christ came to this earth that the world through him might be saved. Amen? He did the reaching. He did the calling. He's come to us. And this book reveals his great love for us. His incredible care. You see a life without grace as a life of disgrace. Sadly, there are probably some here tonight that have never experienced the grace of God. And I want to encourage you that Jesus loves you. And he died for you. And he's asked a very simple thing of us. That we would confess our sin. And that he would freely forgive that sin. And that he would cleanse us from all unrighteousness if we simply ask. So when we close in prayer tonight, there are going to be some pastors up front. Bible tells us that if we confess him before people while we're still on this earth, that Jesus will confess us before the Father. So if you're here tonight and you don't know him, please don't walk out the doors tonight without knowing Jesus. It's the most important decision you will ever make. If you do know him, get ready to see him in a really wonderful way. Because the plans that he has for us as his kids are mind-bogglingly wonderful. But he also has a plan for this earth. And we need to know what it is. As Paul wrote to the church at Philippi there in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, he said, Be anxious for nothing, but by prayer and through supplication. Make your request known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses our human understanding, will do something very strange and very wonderful. It will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. And that's what I want for us. That our hearts and our minds would be held in the hands of Jesus and guarded. The inference there in the original language is he's kind of like we would have an umpire that calls balls and strikes in a, in a baseball game. Forget that one was in, that one was out. He'll guard it. He'll call it correctly. That way that Isaiah 26 promises is good for us. Our minds are at perfect peace when they're stayed on him. We find peace with God because he wants peace with us. This book reveals that peace.
And may you walk in it this week. May we walk in it this week. And as he is unveiled to us, may we see him as the one who always was and is right now everything that any one of us in this room will ever need. And that ultimately, at the end, he's also going to be our reward. He's, he's also going to be that victory shout, amen? He's going to be that day when you take your last breath on this earth and you step out of time and into eternity, you are going to see the face of Jesus, just like John saw the face of Jesus. May that be real to you this week. In Jesus' name. Let's pray. Father, tonight as we think on these things, Lord, as we ponder what it means to believe on him who is and who was and who is to come, Lord, as we think on what it must have been like for you to put off the glories of heaven, Lord, to descend to this earth, to be born of a virgin, to be rejected by men. And yet in that rejection, your ultimate death, your burial, your crucifixion, that you would be raised on that third day. And right now, this very moment, you sit at the right hand of God the Father, praying for us, interceding for us, because you love us that much. Lord Jesus, we love you back. Lord, would our worship be as blown kisses from kids to their parents. Lord, we love you. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for being patient with our world, with the people who don't know you. And God, we pray tonight that if there's anybody in this place, Lord, they've never confessed you. Lord, that your grace would just reel them in. That your voice would speak the truth of these words to them. That they would receive you, Lord, and be saved. God, we love you. We praise you. We bless you. And all God's people said, Amen, amen and amen and amen. Let's